To the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. In the little Methodist church where I came to faith, we had this neat little tradition on Sundays where we were given an opportunity to sing one of our favorite hymns. At the opportune time, the first person to yell out their favorite hymn number would have their hymn sung that day. Well, and we're not doing that here, by the way. All right. Um, One day, somebody yelled out hymn number 330, He Leadeth Me. It's a lovely little hymn. Unfortunately, we don't have it in our hymnal. Um, I would later come to discover this was kind of a staple in our church's repertoire. But that particular Sunday, I was fairly new to the church, and so I'd never heard it before. And so I was kind of taken aback when we got to the third verse, and the verse read, Lord, I would clasp thy hand in mine, nor ever murmur, nor repine. And when I read that word, that last word, I was a little shocked. And you might ask, why? Well, good question. As it so happens, my last name, or my middle name, happens to be Rapine. Now, at the time, I didn't know what it meant. I just knew it was a family name, but it doesn't take a genius to figure out. According to this hymn writer, it's not exactly a good thing, right? So I go rushing home to my mom, and I say, Mom, what in the world does our name mean? Well, guess what? She didn't have a clue either. So she did tell me, though, it is not a bad thing. Clearly, this hymn writer has gotten it all wrong. Well, I was pretty dissatisfied with that answer, so I went looking through some dictionaries for a solution, and I had to go through numbers of dictionaries to finally come across the word. I found it in one of those big, old, fat Oxford dictionaries. It's not very common these days. It was a word that was made popular in the 15th or 16th century, but we don't really use it. So are you ready for the definition? The word repine, according to the Oxford dictionary, means one who feels or expresses discontent. I'm not kidding you. Discontented one. My name literally is Chase the Discontented One, Campbell. If you know what Campbell means, it makes for a really interesting name, okay? And I'm not telling you. You all can figure that out on your own. Now, some of you might be wondering, why am I rambling on about this? Well, today is the third Sunday in our Lenten sermon series on acceptable sins, And we're going to dive in and focus on the acceptable sin of discontentment. And I would like to think of myself as a bit of an expert on the subject. After all, my middle name is discontent. So let's talk about this sin of discontentment. It is a sin that often gets brushed over. And I think that's because there's something about it that just seems so natural, part of our human condition, right? You know, even Western secular psychologists are beginning to argue that contentment may be incompatible with our existence. I'm not making this up. There was this one psychologist by the name of Raphael Yuba, who's a senior lecturer at King's College in London. So it's not some fly-by-night, you know, kind of psychologist. The real deal. Well, he wrote an article titled, Humans Aren't Designed to Be Happy, So Stop Trying. I mean, this sounds like a really delightful fellow, right? In the article, he actually argues that humans are not designed to be content. Contentment is discouraged by nature because it would lower our guard against the possible threats to our survival and undermine our will to accomplish anything at all. That's why, he says, contentment has probably been evolved out of us. And I say, give me a break. 
What does this guy's PhD stand for? Piled higher and deeper? I don't know. It makes no sense, and it completely contradicts what Scripture teaches us. Scripture tells us that, in fact, we were made to find contentment. That even on this side of eternity, there is true satisfaction to be found. Satisfaction despite our circumstances, or our possessions, or our achievements, or our status. Not only are we meant to find contentment, but it's actually part of our God-created design. So what we're going to look at this morning is at this acceptable sin. We're going to unpack the dangers and the destructiveness of discontentment. And then we're going to look at the beauty and the secret of godly contentment. So let's start with this question. What exactly is so dangerous and destructive about this sin? Well, for starters, what what I've already started to say is that there's this tendency to kind of just brush it off as being part of our human being. But it actually runs even deeper than that, because we're also steeped in a culture that, that stokes this feeling, a culture that whispers in our ears, you need more, you deserve more, you want more. There is better out there. Look over there. Isn't that grass look a lot greener? You see, we, this society we live in breeds contempt, discontentment. The author, David Brooks, hits the nail on the head in his book, Road to Character, when he says that the central story of our time is that we live in an unprecedented age of individualism. This has then led us, us to a society that is more disconnected, fragmented, and ultimately discontented. And I couldn't agree with him anymore. It's woven into our culture. We're told we deserve better, we deserve more, and we have absolutely bought in to that lie. And really, this is nothing new. 3,000 years ago, King Solomon talked about this very issue. There's this passage in Ecclesiastes 5 where Solomon uh, warns us, whoever loves money will never have enough. Whoever loves wealth will never be satisfied in their income. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. Basically, Solomon warned us all the way back then that discontentment is like trying to fill a cup with the hole at the bottom. No matter how much we keep filling the cup, we're never going to be satisfied as long as that hole exists. So let me ask you a practical question, see if maybe some of this is kind of festering in your life, okay? How many of you have ever received a raise before? Come on. I'm hoping everyone. Okay, good. Maybe five, seven, ten percent. Now, let me ask you, how did you feel when you got that raise? Pretty good, right? Now, think about six months after that raise. How did you feel about the raise? Probably like, what raise, right? Yeah, our lives just kind of filled that income. That's just the way our minds seem to be wired. In fact, there was this landmark study done by Princeton University back in 2010 where they studied the effect of increasing amounts of money on people's happiness. It's really interesting because what they found is that after people had their basic needs met, their housing, their food, their clothing, that the amount of increase in their income and their wealth really had very insignificant impact on their happiness and their well-being. What they discovered is that there really seems to be a limit there to our contentment. more doesn't necessarily equal greater happiness or satisfaction. And this isn't just a money thing. This can be a career or a success thing. It could be a relationship or appearance thing. 
And that's where our Numbers 11 passage really comes in handy. In our Numbers 11 passage, we, we see the Israelites. They're newly freed from their bondage in Egypt. And we read throughout their whole Exodus story that God has been watching over his people. He has led them through the wilderness. He has protected them in the wilderness. He has miraculously provided for them in the wilderness. And what do we find them doing in Numbers 11? Grumbling. Grumbling and complaining. They start longing for the good old days, as they call it. Back when they lived in Egypt and they had fish and garlic and, 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 and leeks and cucumbers and melons. And they're longing for more, for better. They're not satisfied. It's, it's really interesting and ironic that if we think about it, they're looking fondly back to a time when they were literally held in bondage to their Egyptian slave masters. And that's the other thing discontentment does to us. Not only does it leave us yearning for more and better, but over time, it's going to skew our perspective. It makes us yearn for things that might actually harm us and actually enslave us, all while we're missing the blessings that are being bestowed upon us. Because what you see is discontentment robs us of reality. And here's the really scary part of it all we're not always going to be able to easily recognize it in our lives. We're not always going to be able to point out when we're kind of acting discontent. What I mean by this is when you think of a discontented person, you probably think of someone who acts a bit greedy or envious or jealous, right? And you look at your own life, you think, well, I don't have any of this in my life, so I'm good, right? Well, not so fast. It's, it's a little bit trickier than that. Because actually discontentment wears many, many different masks. It manifests itself in all kinds of different ways. So recently I, I watched a movie that really highlighted the different kind of mass of discontentment. Now a little caveat, a little side, I'm not necessarily recommending you watch this movie. It is not a Christian movie. It's not over the top by today's standards, but the point is not to go home and watch the movie. It's the, it highlights how discontentment kind of surfaces in all kinds of different ways. The movie's called The Whale, and it stars Brendan Fraser. And from what I could tell, every character in the film is wrestling with this issue, and yet each manifests it in a different way. So, for example, there's Charlie, the protagonist, who's a man that is consumed by guilt and regret. But it doesn't lead him to more envy or, or greed or anything like that. No, it instead expresses it through a very self-destructive behavior. Then, there is, then there's his daughter, Ellie who is discontent with her family life. And she expresses her discontent through her, her cynicism and anger. There's Liz, Charlie's friend, who shows her discontentment through her struggles with boundaries and enabling behavior. And there's this young guy named Thomas, who is a young missionary. And at first we think he's the one guy in this movie that is content. But as the story unfolds, we learn even he's not happy with his life. And what he's really doing is he's using a type of moralistic, therapeutic, religious zeal to express that discontent. He's all religion, but no faith. You see, each character is struggling with an unfulfilled desire, and yet each manifests this in different behaviors and attitudes. And here's the tricky part. It's probably going to be the same for us, too. Discontentment is going to sneak up on us in all kinds of different ways. And for that reason, I say this is probably one sin where we really need to go on our knees and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal in our heart where maybe some of this has begun to take root 
so that we can then repent of it and turn it over to the Lord. So let me summarize real quick the dangers and the destructiveness of, of discontentment. For starters, in our sinfulness and our brokenness, we're going to gravitate towards it. On top of that, culture kind of encourages us to be discontent. And the trickiness is that it's going to manifest itself in all kinds of different behaviors and attitudes. The destructive part about discontentment is, it, is that it's like drinking salt water. The more we chase after it, thinking that it will satisfy our thirst, the more we're going to find that it actually makes us thirstier. And just like drinking salt water makes us hallucinate, over time, discontentment robs us of reality. In short, discontentment makes us very unhappy, ungrateful, self-absorbed, dissatisfied, miserable, angry, empty people. Sometimes we call these people teenagers. <laughs> it is a sad way to live. Okay, so that's the bad news. Let's shift gears now and talk about the good news. What is the cure for discontentment? And for that, I want us to turn to Paul. Because in our Philippians passage, Paul writes, I have learned in whatever situation to be content. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Paul tells us that he knows what it's like to live on both sides of the track. As a matter of fact, when he wrote this letter, he wasn't exactly in the best situation. He wrote this letter while he was unjustly held as a prisoner in the Mamertine prison in Rome. Not exactly a delightful situation, right? And yet here's a guy who can say, I am content. And if we read throughout the whole letter, what we'll find is that he says that he's filled with joy and gratitude and peace. Now, the question we all should be asking ourselves is, how can someone who's unjustly locked up in prison still say all that? Well, it's because Paul found godly content contentment. So if discontentment makes us unhappy, miserable, empty people, what Paul presents here is a vision of something that is far better and more beautiful, a life that is filled with joy and gratitude and selflessness and satisfaction. That's the beauty of contentment. That's the fruit of godly contentment. The question then we probably want to ask is, how do we find this? How do we find this for our own lives? Well, Paul tells us in verse 12 that there's a secret. And I'll tell you, as the pastor of this church, for $29.95, I will sell you the secret of Paul. <laughs> it's not that kind of secret. It's not even meant to be taken as mysterious or hard to find. What Paul means here by secret is it's, there's a trick to it. There, there's one path to contentment, and, and Paul has found it, and he's willing to share it with us. Now, in our own context, I do think it's kind of interesting that Paul uses this word secret. And I think that's interesting because if you can remember, back in 2006, there was this author by the name of Rhonda Byrne who wrote a book called The Secret. Do you all remember that book? She, too, also claimed to find the secret to contentment. Only it's the complete opposite of what Paul says. It was a really popular book. There were movies that spun off on it. There were, there's been countless other authors who have recapitulated her work in their own version. The premise of the book is based on the law of attraction, which says that if we just focus hard enough, if, if we just desire something for long enough, that, that energy that we put into that object will, will kind of marshal the energies of the universe and it will just cause it to naturally attract to us so we can then control our, our satisfaction and contentment. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? 
as crazy as that is, it was a very popular book. And that idea still very much resonates with our culture. I think it resonates with them because there's something attractive about feeling like we are in control of our happiness and our contentment. And the reason I say it's ironic is because Paul uses that same word but means the total opposite of what Rhonda Byrne means. So if Byrne tells us that we just need to focus enough of our attention uh, that we can then somehow bend reality to our will, Paul's going to say, no, 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 no. That is not how it works. What we need is to have enough grace to bend our wills to reality. Paul says, contentment is not found in us becoming our own little mini-God. Contentment is found in letting God be God and then trusting that his plans for our lives are far better than anything that we can come up with on our own. That's where true contentment is to be found. Now, Paul would agree with Byrne that there is a secret to this. It's about focus. But it's not about focus on, on our wealth or our success or our relationship. For Paul, it's all about focus on a person. It's about focusing on the person of Jesus. In verse 13, one of the most overused Bible verses in all of Scripture, Paul writes that the secret he found is that he can do all this. He can be happy in prison. He can be happy and content while he's hungry. He can do all this through Jesus who gives him his strength. Now, when we hear this verse, we've probably heard it in the context of some Christian athlete or some business, you know, team that, that is looking for a victory over the big game or a victory over the fourth quarter earnings report. Paul is talking about victory here, but it's a victory over discontentment, even when we're in a really difficult situation. So Paul tells us that even if you find yourself locked up in prison for your faith like him, or even if you feel like the bottom has just been knocked out from underneath you, or if you feel like you've been dealt a bad hand of cards, you can still find contentment. You can find that through Christ. What he's talking about here is a kind of derived strength where Christ gives us this kind of supernatural contentment that fills our lives with joy and peace and gratitude and selflessness, no matter where we are in life. Kind of makes me think back to last weekend. My kids and I were doing a deep cleaning of the house. It's my kids' favorite activity to do every Saturday. They, they love it. So we're doing the deep cleaning. I'm not sure where Jamie was. I think she was out in the back sunbathing, but that's not the point of the story. We're doing the deep clean, and I'm listening to a podcast. <laughs> I'm getting in trouble. I can see in the back. <laughs> I'm listening to a podcast when suddenly it just stops playing. And I look at my phone and it's just kind of doing the buffering thing on Spotify. And so I'm fidgeting around and it, before long I figure out there's something wrong with the Wi-Fi. The internet's out. And so I go over to the magic little internet box in our house and I try to figure things out. It's, it's lit up. It's blinking like it always does. So I reset it hoping that would solve the problem, but that doesn't work. And as I'm playing with it, I realize there's something wrong with the ethernet cable, that like phone looking thing. And it's the little tab that holds it in place is, is slightly busted. And so it wasn't in all the way. And so I just kind of jammed it in there a little bit tighter and then got a piece of tape and, you know, shoved that over top of it. And next thing you know, bam, voila, we're back in business. Do you all see what I'm saying here? I can do all things through Wi-Fi that give me Internet. Do you get <laughs> Not quite, not quite. The point is, as long as that cable was plugged into the magic Internet box, Good things were flowing out from it. 
And isn't that just like what Paul's saying here? As long as we're connected with Christ, his power, his strength, his peace, his joy, his contentment is ours. It will be ours. He gives it to us. It reminds me of what Jesus says in John 15, where he says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. In other words, he is the source of life. Jesus says, if we remain in him and he in us, as long as the, the cord is firmly plugged in, we're going to bear a lot of good fruit. But apart from him, if the cord is, cord is pulled out, then we're always going to be discontent because we're pulled from the source of our content. We have to stay plugged into the source who is the source of life. That's the secret. It's that simple, but that's the secret for Paul. Now, some of you might be asking practically, how do we do this? How can we do this more? How can we connect with Jesus more? Well, maybe for you during the season of Lent, maybe you want to just give your mornings to Jesus. Maybe 15, 20, 30 minutes where you're just spending time with him in prayer and reading scripture and just listening to Jesus. Now, I know in my house, that's a lot easier said than done because the minute we wake up, our feet hit the floor, it's business time. So maybe what you want to do is just simply have worship music on in the background or download an audio version of the Bible and just have scripture saturating your life all day. You could join a life group where God's people will speak God's truth into your life and hold you accountable. Or maybe it's just as simple as stopping by one of our drop-in prayer sessions and asking our prayer leaders to just pray with you, to help you to connect with Jesus more. The point I want you to hear is it's not about kind of pulling ourselves up and, and getting our act together and changing our attitude. It's about connecting with Jesus. It's, a, it's about connecting to the source of our true contentment, which is Jesus. He's the secret. So as we wrap up this morning, here's the bottom line. When we start to peel back the layers of our heart and deal with this very tricky sin, we're going to realize that real satisfaction is not going to be found in, in our circumstances or in what we own or even the things that are going on around us. It's found what's going on in here, in our hearts. Real satisfaction is about being connected with the source of our contentment, the source of life. Paul says that's the secret sauce, staying plugged into him, because ultimately he is our source of joy and peace and life. He is where true satisfaction is to be found. And so in the end, it's not about us getting our act together or trying to fix our own attitudes. It's about tapping into that power source. He's the secret to overcoming our discontentment. So here's my, here's my challenge. Here's my encouragement. Lean into that connection. Lean into Christ. Focus your life on him. And watch your life be transformed by his power and his strength. I think when you do that, you're going to be able to say with Paul, through Christ, we can do all things. We can, we, can have, we can be content when life is, is out of control, when life throws us one of those curveballs. We can have joy even when we're not where we want to be in life. We can have peace when everything seems chaotic and there's chaos all around us because it's not us who gives us that. It's Jesus who gives us our strength. That's our secret. That's where we put our faith and our trust. Amen.